0: The freedom to vote is fundamental to all of our freedoms. Following the 2020 elections in which more Americans voted than ever before in the middle of a public health crisis, we have seen unprecedented attacks on our democracy in states across the country. These strategies in state after state are to make it harder to vote and easier to cheat. Well, I'll tell you what this bill does that we're talking about today the freedom to vote bill it makes it easier to vote and harder to cheat this bill will set
1: a baseline of protections for voters across the country with common sense proven reforms that have already been successfully implemented in blue and red states across the country it's about ensuring that these mass efforts at disenfranchisement that, that reach their most vivid flowering in the violent attack on our capital, don't occur. And that people have the ability to get access to a ballot and to have confidence that their ballot will be counted with integrity. Shame on us if we allow the people's voices to be silenced in this chamber. Voting rights are preservative of all other rights. Right now, the right to vote is under attack. Our democracy is in a 9-1-1 emergency. We must act now. The far right is currently attempting to rewrite history. They don't want people to remember the insurrection for what it was. An attempt to overthrow. Our democratically elected government and replace it with a dictatorship. They lie to confuse the public and to spread division. We must resist their efforts to rewrite history, to undermine democracy. It's important that we all remember what happened and remember it accurately. My name. Is Rich Procita, and I'm the founder of the Truth and Democracy Coalition and the host of Democracy Under Fire. On Saturday, November 6th, I will be leading a study of Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril, about the insurrection. Join us as we fight for democracy by telling the truth. We will summarize the book and then have an open discussion. To register, go to tinyurl.com slash study. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the Word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world.
0: So so the question, of course, has to be asked, why did Christians stop sacrificing? And why do scholars think Christians stopped sacrificing? Well, one was, the biggest reason was when the temple was destroyed in 70, in the year 70 CE, they could no longer sacrifice. And this was all Jews, not just Christians, not just followers of Jesus. All Jews could no longer sacrifice. And they had to come up with alternative um, explanations as to how they could live and how they could be faithful to god and to their traditions and everything so you have yohanan ben zakkai a major rabbi in the post 70 period who talks about your good deeds uh, as sacrifices instead of you know actual sacrifices in a temple and that may be where we get some of the uh, stuff in the new testament which perhaps seems to be anti sacrificial may just be because the temple was was gone and Christian writers like other Jewish writers were having to talk about it and figure out like how do we then proceed also it's not clear that gentile christians and as the and the movement from early on brings in gentiles it's not clear that gentile followers of jesus were required to were, were to to make sacrifices at the jerusalem temple in fact acts 21 in that same passage where Paul agrees to make those sacrifices to prove his loyalty to Israelite law, in that same passage, they mention that Gentiles are not required to do sacrifice. And what it says is they merely should abstain from, from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If they do that, they're good. But notice the first thing. They have to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. And this is important. I'll we'll come back to it. Because basically what they're being told, in a sense, is don't participate in pagan sacrifice. Now, you may think that's a given. But actually, because sacrifice was so embedded in the ancient world, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, you had to kind of spell that out. Because sacrifice was everywhere. Sacrificial meat uh, was everywhere. And it would have been actually pretty hard uh, not to participate in pagan sacrifice in some way or another. In fact, when Paul talks about it, now this is uh, in you know what I just uh, talked about here, the Acts 21 passage is an Acts, But when in Paul's actual writings, when Paul talks about it in his writings, he's actually a little bit equivocal about it. He says, yeah, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols so as not to make your weaker brother or sister stumble. But for your own conscience, yeah, it's no big deal. Yeah, it's, you know, so in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, don't make someone else stumble. Uh, And this has to do with how pervasive sacrifice was in the ancient world. And we'll come back to that because that's an important point. Uh, But getting back to the main point, Uh, of this section that I want to get back to is the reasons Christians stopped sacrificing. One was the destruction of the temple in 70. But even before that, Gentile Christians, it doesn't, it seems were not required to make sacrifices at the Jerusalem temple, but they were being asked not to participate in sacrifice in the in pagan sacrifices from their own cultures, which is interesting. And some uh, authors have said, you know, distance from like a lot of Christians weren't, Jewish or Gentile Christians just weren't close to Jerusalem, so they couldn't make the sacrifices. Of course, that was true of Jews in the Diaspora as well, but maybe that contributed to Christians no longer making the sacrifice. So anyway, that's why kind of how scholars look at how Christians sacrificing at the Jerusalem temple came to an end. So now... You might say, well, what about the texts that speak of Jesus replacing animal sacrifice? So this is coming back to that penal substitutionary uh, view of atonement. Well, as I said, most scholars don't think that that's actually there in Scripture or or they wrestle with it in different ways. Kind of where I've seen a scholarship going on this in terms of Paul's writings is that Paul never actually said, don't sacrifice at the temple. And so his writing about Jesus being our sacrifice seems to be metaphor. It's because Paul did not say don't sacrifice at the temple. If you go back and look at it, you know, that's true. He, He didn't say that. Now, my view is that he didn't want people to sacrifice at the temple if they could avoid it and that it is metaphor when he talks about Jesus being our sacrifice but i'll come back to that so i, I agree with part of that but not the whole thing that where some scholars are are saying that paul was probably okay with sacrifice at the temple so all so any then though so then any talk about jesus as our sacrifice pre-70 they would say is metaphorical metaphorical post-70 then it's more answering the question of what what do we do now that the temple's gone? Well, now Jesus is our sacrifice. So if it's post-70, scholars might look at it that way, that it's, it's an answer to the question, what do we do now that the temple's gone? Now, the book of Hebrews presents a a, a problem. That's where a lot of the substitutionary language comes in, and I can't... That would <laughs> that would be a, a, a several episodes if we were to talk about Hebrews. The Hebrews scholars are divided on whether it's post 70 or pre 70 so then how you look at it like is it is it just metaphor does you know or is it one scholar I was reading recently said that it's post 70 and it's the first time somebody starts talking about Jesus replacing animal sacrifice so that scholar i guess would see something like penal substitutionary atonement already there in the late first century, uh, after the destruction of the temple, maybe not strictly penal substitutionary atonement the way it arose in the West about four or five hundred years ago, but the the at least the groundwork for that in, in some way. I wasn't quite clear on 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 how he did that, and it was only a part of his paper, so his uh, PhD dissertation. So, and I'm going to quote that scholar later on in this episode yeah so hebrews could could be an issue but that's kind of how how scholars are dealing with that okay so now i want to talk about my position and the first thing i want to talk about is how i look at how i address the whole issue of jesus being a replacement for animal sacrifice cuz i don't believe that that's literally what the biblical writers are are saying either. I don't think penal substitutionary atonement is uh, what the Bible teaches. I Because it, it may make sense of certain texts, especially Hebrews, and then a few short passages in Paul. And then there's like these little one, a few one-liners in the Gospels that might indicate substitutionary atonement. So it makes sense of those texts. And if that's what's in your head when you read it, then that's what you think it is that, you know, the Bible's teaching literal penal substitutionary atonement. But then there's a lot of the rest of the Bible that doesn't make sense. A lot of the rest of the New Testament that doesn't make sense. All the, p- the participatory language, then it's like you, you or or you, or you you sort of bifurcate the gospel, the, the New Testament message. I mean, so and I don't have time to, to drill down into this, but the main thrust teaching of the New Testament and of the Gospels, I believe, is participatory. And if you want to talk about it in terms of atonement, I don't really use that word because I think that's something that's just arisen within religious Christianity. But if you want to talk about atonement, then it's oh, what the New Testament teaches is participatory atonement. Jesus says, follow me take up the cross and follow me. We are to be crucified with Christ. We are to become sacrifices with Christ. So it's not substitutionary that he is sacrificed instead of us. That's substitutionary. He is sacrificed instead of us. It's participatory. We follow him in the way of the cross. We become sacrifices with him. That's, and that makes sense of a lot more of the gospel and of the New Testament than substitutionary. So the p- few places where it, it sounds substitutionary, I think those are metaphor. Those are ways of talking, but that are not literal. The ways of talking about what Jesus did that are not literal. And I think the best way to understand this is the way people might understand the sacrifices of soldiers dying in battle. Soldiers are fighting an enemy but they're not taking the punishment for our sins. I mean, if you you think war is an evil, then maybe maybe so, but that's not the way most people will look at it, right? Uh, in, in normal conventional thinking, a soldier that is fighting on our behalf sacrifices for us, is a sacrifice for us, but not a punishment for our sins. Is not taking God's wrath So God doesn't kill us, maybe taking the enemy's wrath. So the enemy doesn't kill us, but we are in solidarity. And in a sense, like you think of world war II for the United States, everybody took part in the war effort, right? That was the whole idea. Like some people went to fight other people, especially women went to work in the factories and people, you know, grew their victory gardens and, you know, everybody had a role to play. Everybody made a sacrifice, but for some people, it was the sacrifice of dying on the battlefield. It was the ultimate sacrifice. So when Jesus is talked about uh, as our sacrifice, that I think is what's being understood. And the reason I say that is because this was an idea that was already around in ancient Israel. The Maccabean fighters, the Maccabean freedom fighters were talked about as sacrifices of atonement. You know, and it wasn't the idea that Jesus, that God was taking out uh, God's wrath on the Maccabean freedom fighters. It was that when they went out there and they made the ultimate sacrifice, that their righteous deed uh, made atonement for their people some way. But it was a way of thinking about somebody is fighting the enemy for you, that you're in solidarity with, that you might even follow them into battle, depending on who you are that person that, that you talk about that person in terms of sacrifice. So um without getting further into it, that's how I understand the substitutionary language, the sacrificial language in the New Testament. It's the sacrifice of someone fighting for us and that we're in solidarity with. And it actually calls us to follow him into battle. So but that but that uh brings up the whole Thing about in in ancient Israel, there was already this idea developing um, that sacrifices aren't necessarily needed. So, like the the Maccabean freedom fighters were uh, sacrifices, and there was this idea that our good deeds are our sacrifices. And that's why Johanan ben Zakkai, the post seventy rabbi, could say that so easily after the temple was destroyed, because that idea was already there in in Israel. And in fact, there was already, I think, abolitionist talk about sacrifices. For example, um, Isaiah 66 verse 3 reads, Whoever slaughters an ox is like one who kills a human being. Whoever sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever presents a grain offering, like one who offers swine's blood. And whoever makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their ways and in their abominations, they take delight. That sounds pretty anti-sacrifice to me. That's not just protesting or objecting to the way sacrifice is done. It's Opposing sacrifice itself. So these critiques weren't just critiques of the way things were done. These were abolitionist critiques. So, uh, so, it, and it went the reins. I'm not saying that actually that the Maccabean freedom fighters calling them sacrifices of atonement was an abolitionist statement toward sacrifice, but it was the idea germinating at least. So I think you had different voices saying different things, but that the idea that we don't really need sacrifices was there. And there were critiques of the priests and there were, you know, critiques of the temple and the, of the corruption. And I think it got to the point of being abolitionist, like, like, you know, this is such a power problem that we just don't need it. All right. So my argument with a lot of scholars who believe that the early Christians, uh, the early followers of Jesus were completely okay with sacrifice and the priesthood and the temple, the whole temple establishment. They had no beef with them because they were part of their tradition. My, my first objection to that is that I don't think those scholars are taking seriously the, the radical egalitarian teaching of the gospel. In fact, I don't think a lot of them see it. In the Gospels, and you see this clearly in Matthew, Jesus is proposing, is championing a new, radically egalitarian social order. He says, the first will be last and the last will be first. This, we talk about this as the great reversal, but it wasn't a literal reversal. This is hyperbolic talk to talk about, to describe the leveling of society. The first will be last and the last will be first. Uh, the greatest will be everyone's servant. So, the idea that nobody arrogates themselves to p- positions of power over others. If you want to be great, you've got to be everybody's servant. The outcasts are brought to the center and given the greatest honor. This was the gospel vision. This was the New Testament vision, this radically egalitarian teaching. And to teach that new social order, and then to leave the priesthood in place with its sacrificial system, the whole temple establishment in place, that makes no sense. Now, sometimes, you know, progressive or egalitarian movements have blind spots, but that's a big blind spot. And because that was, the, that was one of the main vehicles of ruling class oppression, of ruling class control. I think these scholars are not taking uh the radically egalitarian teaching of the gospel seriously or are really seeing it clearly. a radical egalitarian position could not leave the priesthood intact. I just don't think it could so let me make the argument though a specific argument of where I see Jesus opposing the priesthood and the sacrificial system or or priesthoods and sacrificial systems and the temple. But we see it because he's operating in Israel. We see it mostly in Israel. First, uh, we have uh, John the baptizer. So, and Jesus is baptized by John. But John the baptizer is baptizing people for uh, repentance of sins at the Jordan River without sacrifice. Now, some scholars have said, well, it didn't mean the people didn't make sacrifices. They could, they could that could be in tandem with the sacrificial system, uh, sort of a supplement to it. But that's not the way it's said. There's no indication that John is sending people then to the Jerusalem temple to make the appropriate sacrifices, and he's dealing with common people. Most people just, you know, this is one thing. Part part of my argument too is that most people just couldn't do that. It was. The, the requirements were too onerous and too expensive and most, uh, a lot of peasants were, were almost destitute. I mean, they were exceedingly poor, barely at survival, they were in survival mode and making sacrifices at the temple just wasn't something they could do. So John was providing a way for them to have forgiveness, to attain a type of purity that was very vital in that society. He was offering away and without sacrifices. And Jesus is baptized into this movement. And then he goes on to pronounce people clean and forgiven without the sacrifices. Now, yes, there was the leper incident. And I've talked about that in previous episodes and I will come right back to it. But before that, I want to remind us of the incident of the paralytic In that one, he delays the healing in order to, to pronounce the the man forgiven of his sins, forgiven of his sins. And he does not send that guy to the temple to do sacrifices. He just says, you're forgiven. And then in Matthew, it says that the people praised God because God had given such authority to human beings. In other words, to people, to normal people. That is why they praised God. They didn't praise God because God had given the authority to Jesus. This wasn't about just Jesus having that authority. This isn't a a statement about Jesus' divinity. This is Jesus taking, assuming the power of the priesthood. The people were rejoicing because that meant that they weren't at the mercy of the priests, that they didn't have to go to Jerusalem to make the sacrifices, which they couldn't afford. Or which, and they didn't have time to afford. That's why they were rejoicing. It says they rejoiced because God had given a, this authority to human beings, to regular common people. And that is a phrase that uh, Matthew adds to the story that Mark, you know, Mark came first. Mark was written first. Mark has this story. Matthew gets it from Mark. Mark didn't have that clarification in there. I think that was what was implied in the Markan text. But, Mark didn't have it. Matthew goes out of his way to add that that the people gave glory to God because God had given this authority to the people. So now, before that, there is the instance of Jesus encountering the leper, and I've covered this in an in an earlier episode, but but Jesus, however you look at this, Jesus, you know he does send the guy to the to the temple to make the appropriate sacrifices with the priest, sends him to the priest of the temple to make the appropriate sacrifices that Moses commanded. However, before that, he pronounces the man clean. He pronounces the man clean. How many times should I say this? Yeah, okay, I'll stop. I could say that over and over. He pronounces the man clean. The That is something that only a priest could do. And only after... The sacrifices were done. But Jesus takes this authority for himself and pronounces the man clean. And then when he sends him to the priests at the temple, he he sends him as a testimony, as a testimony to or against the priests. You could translate it as against, but even if it's to, I mean, he's sending a message. What is the message he's sending? Reza Aslan thinks that it's a joke, that Jesus doesn't mean he should, doesn't really mean for him to go to the temple. And this is just a joke because if you go back to Leviticus and you read the passage about cleansing for a leper, it is onerous. Yeah, it, it's an, like an eight day process or more or something like that. And it's, it's just got so many steps that even the poor man's version is, is just too much. And, you know, even if they could afford the stuff, the animals and the stuff that you got to bring it's 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 you know most peasants wouldn't have the time for this they got to be out you know hustling making a living you know so so Ressa Aslan thinks is a joke you know I I think he's got a point there uh Chad Myers thinks that um there was no actual healing that took place you know and because and and he's got a good point here because what gets translated leprosy is probably almost certainly in fact not what we call leprosy today, which is a debilitating disease. It was probably just referring to any skin rash or condition like eczema or something like that, that made a person unclean and therefore, you know, marginalized in society. And Jesus is just saying, no, you're clean. They shouldn't say you're not clean. You're clean. He's basically saying, don't marginalize this person. And then he sends them to the priest saying, Tell the priest, you have a right to those sacrifices. They need to give you the, you know, because normally the priest would have to look at your skin and say, is is the condition gone? If it's gone, then they let you make the sacrifices. He's saying, no, you go and you tell them that you are allowed, that I said, you're clean and like, they're going to, you know, recognize the authority of Jesus. Maybe that's the joke. I don't know, but, uh, he's He's, he's the, the testimony is a challenge. He's saying this man should be allowed. And that's why in that one instance, it can look like Jesus is condoning or he's pro-sacrifice, but he's not really pro-sacrifice. He's challenging the power of the priests because the the issue is not whether you're for or against this ritual, this religious ritual. The issue is about power. And in that case, he's challenging the power of the priest's. But after that, he never does that again. He never tells anyone else to go to the temple and and offer the sacrifices. In fact, in the very next chapter, he heals somebody. he, He pronounces someone forgiven and he doesn't send them, send the guy to the temple. And the people praise God because God has given such authority to people, to regular people. So, Aside from that, we have Jesus twice quoting Hosea, who says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Twice he quotes that. And then toward the very end of the story, one of the last things Jesus does is he goes into the temple and disrupts the whole sacrificial system. He's not chasing out the money changers because the money changers just aren't supposed to be there according to the law. They are. If you look, uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy. Don't remember the actual text. But in Deuteronomy, they're supposed to be there. He chases them out because he's just done with sacrifice. He he stops the whole sacrificial system. And then he brings in the blind and the lame who are not supposed to be in the temple and he heals them in the temple after he has ended he, or he has disrupted the whole sacrificial economy. And so I'm going to take this point to... Uh, take this opportunity to quote a scholar that agrees with me, Warren Carter, whose work I use a lot for this podcast. In his book, Matthew, Storyteller, Interpreter, Evangelist, Carter says that the line from the prophet Hosea that Jesus quotes twice in Matthew, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is a criticism of the temple's sacrificial system. And He goes on from there and says that his actions of throwing out those who exchanged money and sold doves for sacrifice are an attack on both its exploitative economic practices that benefited the elite high priestly families and on its sacrificial worship. People exchanged money in order to purchase animals for sacrifice. Jesus' actions prevent the temples function as a place of sacrifice, instead, Jesus cites isaiah fifty six seven in calling it to be a house of prayer. He welcomes and heals those usually excluded from the temple. These actions indicate that the temple's sacrificial system is no longer needed End quote. That's a page one ninety six of Matthew, Storyteller, Interpreter, Evangelist, by Warren Carter. And while I'm at it, let me take this opportunity to cite another scholar that seems to agree with me, William E. Arnall, in Jesus and the Village Scribes, commenting on the 10th chapter of Matthew, makes the argument that Q1, the earliest source from which Matthew draws material for his story, Q1 supports direct access to God apart from the formal structures of the temple, thereby bypassing, quote, ideological apparatuses that serve to universalize and justify the interests of the cities and of the imperial order in its Judean manifestation, end quote. It's page 198-199 of Jesus and the Village Scribes. What he means is that this early part of Matthew's source material supports direct access to God, which means bypassing the temple, priests, and sacrificial system, what he calls the apparatuses of the ruling class. So that's pretty close to what I've been saying, although I've not put it in terms of direct access to God, but rather in terms of who has authority to pronounce someone clean and therefore to be in good social standing. That's the way I put it, but it's pretty close. So that's a lot to chew on right there.
1: This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.